0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I just had the pleasure of talking with Mark Moskowitz about his new book, Go Nation Chinese Masculinities and the Game of Wei Qi in China. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. This book takes the game of Wei Qi which you may be familiar with under the term go in China, and it uses it as a lens through which to understand transformations in society, in politics, in concepts of nationalism and nationhood, and in the construing construction and experience of selfhood in contemporary China. It looks specifically at aspects of selfhood that are embedded within masculinities, ideas of masculinities, the disciplining of bodies and of minds and of boys in particular in terms of different kinds of masculinities, and the transformations in masculinities um, that emerge from different styles of playing the game and of being trained to play the game in different communities in which Moskowitz um, conducted his ethnography. So the book takes us into a kind of cultural history of Weiqi as a game. It takes us into kind of conceptual Modes and conceptual discourses that have been associated with Wei Qi. And really fascinatingly, it takes us into schools where school children are learning how to play Wei Qi. It takes us into universities where university students are struggling to balance their commitments and training to try to become professional players of Wei Qi with their commitments and the demands of university life. And it also takes us into parks in which largely retired communities of um, elderly people, largely men, are also using the game to form their own communities and to engage their own modes of self-formation and masculinity. It's also a lot of fun. And so this is a book that's a real pleasure to read. It's written in a very careful but very clear and very concise way. And it's just full of really empathetic, um, also at times very funny stories of real people that Moskowitz spent time with and learned from in his exploration of Weiqi. So it's a real pleasure pleasure to read. It was a real pleasure to talk with him about. um, And I hope you enjoy the book. I hope you have a chance to read it. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here today to talk with Mark Moskowitz about his new book, Go Nation, Chinese Masculinities and the Game of Wei Weiqi in China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Mark, and thanks very, very much for making the time to talk with me today about book yes. that I really enjoyed. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Carla. It's a real pleasure to be on your show.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. So Mark, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and specifically how did you come to the study of modern China and how did you come to decide to take a kind of anthropological approach to your engagement with modern China?
1: Good. You know, it was, to be honest, it was kind of random. Uh, I had studied English literature as an undergraduate and afterwards there was a program that went to China to teach English. Uh, I had originally wanted to go to Africa, but the the program that went to China uh, was free. So I said, Oh, I'll I'll do that. It was, it was completely random. (laughs) And that was back in 1988. Um, and I stayed for about a year and then the Tiananmen event happened. And so I, I prudently ran away like any, any, any coward would do and ended up in Taiwan. And then, uh, I don't know if you add it all up. I spent about 10 years in Taiwan and a year and a half in in China proper. So it, it really became a second home to me in a lot of ways.
0: So the book that we're talking about today is an ethnography of Weiqi in China, and it focuses um, to a large extent on Beijing, although it also incorporates attention to other areas. Now it uses Weiqi as a lens through which to consider some really broad and really important questions about, among other things, and we'll talk about a lot of this in the course of our conversation. What it means to be a child, to be a university student, or to be a retiree or a senior citizen in contemporary China, and how Different modes of masculinity are constructed within those spheres and within those roles. And so it's a really fascinating study of not just Go or Wei Qi, um, but also a study that uses that as a lens through which to understand um, a lot of really broader cultural and social and historical issues that I think of of really wide interest to lots and lots of readers. So it's a great book. um, And that's what we're talking about today. (laughs) So you've already talked a little bit about how you came to work with China and on China. How did you decide to write um, to write on this topic in particular and how did you decide specifically to do a book length project on Wei Chi in China?
1: Well and these are all great questions so I chose book length project uh, work my way backwards is it, just because I think books reach a wider audience and, and my hope has always been, to add to the discussion among academics, but maybe reach lay people as well. Uh, with the topic of Weichi, it's particularly been interesting to Wei players, uh the people who had not studied, many of whom did not go to university, but they're they're interested in the topic because they play. So for me, it was a nice opportunity to introduce anthropology to a wider audience and, and also to explore a topic that hadn't really been looked at, hadn't been examined in the anthropological eye. Beijing seemed like the perfect place for me to do it uh, because they have a professional team, uh, which Taiwan does not. And so uh, in addition to the professional team, there are a lot of professional schools for children to go to. And when I first went, I really conceived of the project as me hanging out with the team members and and watching their day-to-day struggles. But it didn't take long before I realized how this really influenced uh, the life stages of men who were learning the game. And so I I spent some time at a children's school taking classes with 10-year-olds and just being utterly crushed by many of them on on the board. Uh, And then I spent uh, an equal amount of time with Beijing University students who were on the team and and some just uh, people who played for fun. And then the third group I spent a lot of time with were retired senior citizens, working class people at a park. And so not only was it a window view into masculinity in the game, but it was a window view into China's incredible changes over time, the historical Uh, Transformation of China. I I can't think of another country that has changed so fast and so much. And Weiqi, oddly enough, became a wonderful window view to a lot of these issues.
0: Let's actually talk about that a little bit because this is something that you mention explicitly early in the practice of the book, and um, in which you tell us that you came to um, China in 1988 and talk a little bit about your teaching um, in Xi'an, and then go on to compare the China uh, that you knew when you were first teaching there in 1988 and the China that you encountered when you were doing fieldwork for the Wei Chi book. So you mention in the context of raising these issues. <laughs> Wei Qi is a way of making sense of, or trying to make sense of this really exceptionally rapid economic and political set of transformations in China, at least the transformations as far as you observed them, given your experience. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are some of the ways, kind of right off the bat, um, that Wei Qi initially helped you understand or helped you see aspects of those transformations, given your initial experience in China?
1: Well, that's a wonderful question, Carla. As you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, when I first went to China, uh, it was much more like old Soviet Union. There there were people in gray outfits of green and blue, and and the state was very intrusive. It was really everywhere. People were very uh, wary of what they said and who they talked to. And then flash forward to... uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and it was like a different universe. Almost no bicycles. It was all Mercedes and, and luxury cars. Uh, the special route for, that was reserved on the road for bicycles had been removed to make more room for this. People's clothing, attitudes, body language, it all, for want of a better word, become Taiwanified. Uh, it had become much closer to Taiwan of the late 80s than, than China and so that, that was an exciting thing to see, the, the utter transformation and, and to some degree the way which Taiwan culturally, I think, has been the tail wagging the dog in, in China, that it has given Chinese people uh, a model that's appropriate for their modernity, uh, a model for who do we want to be. That serves as a, an important template that's very different from, say, America, which is, is often dismissed for... Uh, being too culturally distant. Now, what wei qi is, is a powerful force of imagery here because wei qi is, is, was created in China. And so many status symbols in the contemporary era of China are Western-bound. You have your suit and tie. You have your sports card. You have your uh, piano lessons. But learning Wei Chi is a return of traditional China, and so many people took it as a template, a model for who they want to become—a way of looking back with a certain nostalgic view to China's past uh, that predated the communist era—and saying, "Well, as we think about who we want to be in the new global economy, uh, why don't we why don't we look at some of these older is- images of who we were?" Before, And that's an exciting process to, to watch, I think.
0: Now in the course of doing research for the book and well you've already mentioned um, very briefly the, some of the sites that you went to in the process of researching the book and we'll talk about those in I'm sure much more detail. As we move into the body chapters of the book, and they're all really fascinating. Um, but I, before we get to those, I wanted to kind of briefly um, ask you about or talk about a little bit something that you also mentioned very early in the preface. And that is, while you were doing the research for the book, you were simultaneously involved in the filming of a documentary about Wei chi in China. Is that right?
1: That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's a very amateurish production. It was basically me with a a, a high-end camcorder, but still just a, a one-man production. Uh, but I think uh, what the film does do very nicely is for those people who are interested in reading the book, you can watch the film and kind of put a named uh, face to the name for a lot of the people I interview in the book. And it, it covers some of the same issues uh, of course because of the It's only 15 minutes, so I can't go into the depth I go into with the book. But I think they complement each other very nicely.
0: Great. So now as we move into the chapters of the book, we're going to see that the book takes on um, some questions, and you lay these questions out early on, and I'll just mention them um, for listeners so that listeners can get a sense of the kinds of topics that are going to come up in the course of our conversation. Um, so some of the questions that you raise, and I won't ask you to answer <coughs> these now, but I'll just kind of lay these out as context. Sure. Um, sure, How did Wei Qi attain such high status in a Confucian-influenced culture despite the fact that the game was derided, actually? by both Confucius and Mencius. Um, How did the game represent at the same time the martial power of generals, the intellect and self-control of the Confucian gentleman, and a kind of modern scientific rationality? So we'll see that um, played out later on in the chapters. What does it mean to be a child, to be a university student, and to be a retiree in contemporary urban China, um, especially? Um, Also, the book is going to go on to talk about Wei Qi in the context of nationalist discourse. So how do nationalist discourses about Weiqi in China kind of intersect with um, and reveal tensions with Japan, Taiwan, and Korea? And, and actually, um, one of the points that you make in this part of the book um, that I think is really useful, urge us to rethink um, the kind of dominant East-West binary that's mm-hmm. often in academic work um, about this. And finally, and as we've mentioned a little bit already, how does the game provide a space for constructing masculinity in particular ways? And how does your observations um, and participation in this game give you insight into the emergence of different modes of masculinity in these different spaces?
1: Carla, I think you could have written the book. You you put it better than I could. No, no, this is this is
0: largely how you put it. So thank you for writing such a clear and well organized book. So this is um, these are some of the issues that we'll talk about in the course of the chapters, just to kind of give listeners a flavor for really the depth and the richness of the kinds of things that you are using this game to explore and to look at, which aren't always about game playing, right?
1: Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So first, um, one of the really useful kinds of work that the introduction does is it lays out um, kind of the basics that we need to know about what Wei Qi is and how you play it in order to understand what's going to follow. So let's actually start in... um, right along those lines. what What is Weichi, um, for listeners who may not be familiar with this, and what do we need to know about the way it's played and the rules in order to understand um, what's going to unfold in the narrative to come?
1: Good. I, you know, Weichi is a logic game, and basically uh, it's played on a 19 by 19 grid, and you put stones down. Uh, if you surround a stone, you can take it off, Uh, But otherwise, they don't move. Uh, Weichi means surrounding game, surrounding logic game. And so really the the essence of the game is to surround either your own territory or your enemy's territory. And at the end of the game, whoever is covering the most territory wins, essentially. So this this gets used a lot in... uh, in uh, kind of discourses about warfare, for example. And, and so a lot of the vocabulary is very similar, invading the enemy's territory, uh, uh, killing the enemy, uh, surviving groups. And uh, in essence, though, I think you could read the book without knowing the game itself. The, the surrounding metaphors are really the only thing you need to know about the actual strategy of the game.
0: And what are some of the most important spaces where we would find and where you found Wei Chi being played? And you mention in the book um, not just physical spaces where people are gathering in person, but also some online spaces that become really important um, to understanding the landscape of Wei Chi.
1: Well, and, and I'm glad you said spaces. I'm glad you mentioned the word spaces because uh, I, I forgot to, in our discussion of how to play the game, I should mention that, interestingly enough, the counting system in Japan, you only get points for the spaces. And I've always thought that was such a wonderful Dallas metaphor for uh, it's the spaces that count. It's the spaces that empower <laughs> Uh, originally, China also used the accounting system, but then they switched to a different counting system. But So that's one kind of space, right, the space on the board. A, a second kind of space are clubs uh, where you might pay a, a couple of uh, yuan, uh, renminbi, to go play at. Or you may take someone home. Uh, now, uh, housing is so limited, the, the space is so limited, that I think dude, people... Prefer to play outside in some form or another, and as you mentioned, one one space that to play outside is online, and I think more than anything else, online possibilities for the game have transformed the game and created arguably a, a renaissance for Weiqi because for the first time, someone in China, just a layperson, not a professional can play an American, or they could play someone from Korea, or they could play someone from Japan. And so not only do they get a chance to try out these different styles of play, because every country has its own kind of personality on the board, interestingly enough, but they also get a chance to kind of chat. A lot of these online servers, uh, the most popular in the U.S. would be KGS, Kasido Go server. Uh, they, you can also kind of chat if you choose to with the person you're playing with. And so this is for China with such a history of not having access to the outside world. Uh, Go has really transformed the way they're, they're seeing the world. And importantly, I think these online spaces are a reminder of our commonalities, that in spite of the fierce competition between Japan and China and Korea, On the go board, uh, that's also a shared love, a shared passion, and to some degree that that creates a a venue for ping-pong politics uh, to rise above our nationalities, even as we're having national competitions.
0: Now. There's an elaborate ranking system. So, th- And this is also laid out early in the book. And I won't ask you to go into too sure. much detail about this. Sure. But I just want to just mention so that mm-hmm. listeners have a sense of this. This isn't simply, um, or as it's depicted in the book, um, it's this isn't simply, you know, sitting down with your buddies and playing checkers necessarily, right? There's an elaborate ranking right. system. Um, and you bring us into the world of not just amateur, but also professional Wei players and really the kind of when we start to understand what makes someone professional, what makes someone amateur, the boundaries start to blur in really, really interesting ways. And
1: that was one of the more surprising things to me. Uh, there is a ranking system. Roughly, there is an amateur category, a high-level amateur category, which would be called done, and then a professional uh, category. And in China, uh, as as in uh, Korea and Japan, I believe, there, there's a limit on how many people can be professionals per year. They set a limit. Uh, and in China, at the time of my study, there were only 20 people a year who would be allowed to be professional. And this was based on an annual competition. And so if they if they succeeded in that annual competition at the age of 14 or 16, then they're professional for life. This is, it's an honorary status they keep, regardless of whether they keep playing or not. If they had a bad day, or they didn't have the training because their parents weren't as invested in it, or they were sick uh, for a couple years. I interviewed one person who was very sick when he was 16, and, and later he went on to make wagey his career all of these possibilities exclude them from the professional competitions for lights and and so one thing that happens is you get people who for you know they're they're terribly skilled i don't want to downplay their achievements but they had a good year they had a good competition and so at the age of 14 or 16 they become a professionally ranked player And let's say at the age of 18, they decide never to play again. They decide to be a university student. They still are higher ranked than one of these other people who didn't do do too well at the annual competition, but since have made a career playing at amateur games for basically for their whole lives. And often the highest level amateurs are in fact much better players than some of the lower level professionals. And so I, I think this is something that, that needs to be changed. In the Chi world, there's a tremendous amount of disgruntlement about this. It's not like, say, Western chess, where every competition you play continues to modify your ranking. And in in the system in China and, and, and Korea and Japan, uh, once you get to that level, you never go down. But the access to the top levels is, if you don't do it by the age of 16 when you're male, or uh, 18 if you're female, then you're kind of doomed in this system. And I think to some degree this becomes a metaphor for the fierce competition in China in general, that people use Weiqi as a reminder of just how competitive Chinese society is when you have such a, a dense population, all of whom are terribly invested in success and have a work ethic many of whom are, are uh driven towards university training and in that environment there was a tremendous angst among university students about their future and and we, we get that here in the u.s but i think there there was really much more of a sense as wow if i make one wrong move in my life my, my whole life is going to be defined by that one wrong move and and Weichy, of course, uh, uh, becomes a wonderful metaphor for that because they could say, well, Weichy's the same. If you make one wrong move, often that will define the entire game.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about what's happening in the book that sort of takes that and builds on it is that you're showing here that not only is wei Qi a kind of microcosm for working through and understanding larger social phenomena, right? Like competitiveness of society, right. but that it's right. specifically coded masculine. And so in these three major um, groups that you are taking us into, and, and we get into this in detail as of chapter four, so we'll look at these in detail in a moment mm-hmm. or two, um, but when you're looking at the case of children, wei Qi becomes a kind of disciplinary mechanism that Teaches proper behavior and logic, but exactly. for boys, right? For men, yeah. for university students, um, it's sort of used to understand and critique a very highly competitive political economy, um, just as you said. But also to construct, as you show in the book, this kind of very idealized form of manhood based on mm-hmm. of a sort of archaic um, cultured gentleman. So again, it's coded masculine, and then even. There's a particular form of kind of uh, masculine play that even comes out of the the specific ways that the retirees that you look at in the park play. So, this is a story also about what it means to engage masculinity and manhood in this. Now, did you go into the research understanding that that was the story that you wanted to tell?
1: No, not at all. Because there
0: are women in the story, right? And you mentioned them um, early in the book. Can you talk about that a little? At what point did this become clear to you that this was an important part of the story?
1: Yeah. No, I, I, you know, of all the, uh, when I first told people I was going to study Weiqi, the culture of Weiqi. The first reaction was, well, you know, where does that go? And when I try to explain the masculinity uh, argument, people found it very counterintuitive. And and uh, my greatest pleasure is now that the book's out, people are saying, of course, it's masculinity. Of course, you know, it's this wonderful moments of triumph that, okay, it worked. The argument works. Um I think, you know, to some degree, I I was aware that that masculinity would be a dynamic because I I grew up playing chess as a very young child. I I learned to play Western chess, really, before I could remember. Uh, I don't remember ever not being able to play. That's how young I was when I learned. And, you know, that, too, is a very male-dominated sphere. I, I think the difference that I didn't expect was that in Western chess, it's really a very male sphere from the beginning. If you look at five-year-olds, it's primarily boys playing the game. That isn't to say there aren't some amazing, amazing female players. And I think more true now than ever, uh, there there are some real forces of nature, uh, females who are, are really making their imprint onto this uh, sphere, both in Weichi and in In chess. But the difference uh, is when I started taking classes with children, I saw that at the age of five, the classes were roughly equal, that there were roughly half girls and half boys. And so to some degree, I was surprised at the parents' belief that these male coded traits would help women uh, as they grew up. Uh, By the age of 10, almost all the girls had dropped out. And so that also evinces a certain set of uh, gender and expectations, self-defined expectations, but also that, you know, the way the teachers and students and parents talked about the game, it was all the expectation that the girls wouldn't make a career out of it, wouldn't be interested long-term. And to my surprise, uh, even female professionals that I interviewed, uh, really kind of embraced this notion that men are just better at logic, men are more aggressive, which is good in the game, that men are by nature better at the game. Even as I was talking to someone who was one of the top 200 players in the country of 1.2 billion, 1.3 billion people. Uh, so the pervasiveness of it being embedded in a discourse of biological determinism, I thought was quite interesting. So what are these things that they think children can benefit from and that are so male-coded? Uh, logic. And so people thought girls would benefit from honing their weaknesses. Don't shoot the messenger. I, I, this isn't my idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, this is a culturally bound strata here. And that. so they thought that both girls and boys would benefit from the math skills they learn counting these pieces. Again, it's a 19 by 19 grid. It's a lot of stones to count. It's a lot of pieces to count when they're doing scores. Uh, it was thought that Wei Qi teaches children to be great business people because it teaches them to invest in several different areas on the board, to not get too committed to to commit. But if you see yourself losing Past the point of no return, you abandon that part of the board, just like you would abandon a bad investment. Uh, it also teaches people that all, if you're too aggressive, you'll lose, but if you're not aggressive enough, you lose. And so all of this was very male coded, but it was thought that both girls and boys would benefit uh, from those personality traits, essentially, that it was thought the game was instilling into these children.
0: That's great. And um, you're showing in real detail, and this is especially um, uh, explored in Chapter 3 when you're looking at this, but also in a little bit in Chapter 2, that some of what's happening in the course of this exploration of wei qi is a way of cultivating and disciplining um, young people, older people, is that one of the things that makes this possible, or one of the, the ways of understanding wei qi, um so causality here, um, which which is causing which, who knows? But it becomes a site of interplay between on the one hand a kind of set of when or scholarly sorts of mm. virtues and on the other hand at the same time uh woo or sort of martial military virtues, right? And so this is part of what's going on I and mean, consequences of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that also kind of brings us into um The importance of wei qi in the context of the nation, and
1: absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and I saw this perhaps the most with the university students because they they, their whole lives this was at Peking University, which is arguably the, the number one university in the country, and so their whole lives have been dedicated not only to attaining the skills necessary to go to university, but to embracing the personality. Of an elite gentry scholar, this template for masculinity of the elite that, that dated back millennia. Um, Wei Chi in the past, I mean, you, you mentioned that it had become one of the requirements of Confucian gentlemen in traditional China, and that's absolutely right. So, Wei Qi, uh becomes a symbol, again, for this older world, this nostalgia, and part of that is embedding in proper behavior. Uh, Again, being a good sport becomes uh, part of this. But but the mastery of this then becomes a declaration of mastery of of a construction Confucian ideal. And I'm trying to think of an example that might be parallel in the West. And, you know, again, chess is a nice example. If you see cognac advertisements on television uh, or in in a magazine, uh often there's a chess set in the background somewhere. The chess becomes a uh a, a kind of image that gets used to to declare to the viewer, here you are in an elegant setting. Uh so so I think uh the qi's place in as part of a requirement of becoming that Confucian gentleman, it, it means that these university students were embracing not only the game but the general ethos of that Confucian gentleman. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier this concept of uh, proper models of playing and this becoming a, a way of constructing masculinity well, as well, and that's absolutely vital to the study. There, there's a term, shensho, which is seizing the initiative. And essentially, seizing the initiative was is a way of you make a move, on the board that your opponent cannot help but respond to. They have to respond. And if you could do that several moves in a row, you decline, you determine the flow of the game. And it was thought that being able to seize the initiative was not only a strategy on the board game, but actually a construction of masculine ideal as well. That a man who could control other men through his intellect was thought to be the, the epitome of a man. Now, in the retirement group, the folks that were playing in the park who were retired, kind of working class folks, I was really struck at how much these metaphors had sunk into their culture as well, even though they had no part of this glorified ideal of tradition. They had no part of this image of the Confucian gentleman. They had no investment in this, but they also thought of seizing the initiative as a vital part of their masculinity. And again, this sense of a true man is not dominated by other men became a metaphor that played out on the weight board, uh, but that really became part of who they were, how they thought of themselves as people in their day-to-day lives.
0: Now, you've already mentioned a little bit, I think, very briefly that there were different ways of understanding kind of national styles of play, right? A Korean national style Mm. of wei chi and and Japanese and Chinese, et cetera, et cetera. And you talk about this in chapter three in really, really interesting detail. Mm. Now. You go into, um, in this part of the book, the ways that Wei Qi playing actually reflects not just kind of discourses about masculinity, but discourses about the nation, about nationhood. And this, Absolutely. like, this creates a really interesting, way of looking at and looking through Weiqi to envision specifically relationships between and attitudes toward China and Japan. Um, We've Mm -hmm. sort of gone back and forth a little bit between saying Go and Mm Weiqi, right? There's a Japanese name and the Chinese name, so this sort of gets at these larger issues. So can you talk about that briefly? Um, How does how do these larger nationalistic kinds of discourses play out when, um, or in your experience studying the game? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, these are vitally important issues as well. And, and one reason Americans say go is because the Japanese name for the game is ego and, and I-G-O. Uh, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But um, Japan, uh, for approximately 400 years, really dominated the game. They had four Ouija houses, kind of schools that were supplemented or funded by the government. To play, and they really took the game to a whole new level. And so, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was already being introduced by America. It really took off after the Second World War. Um, and But even today, Japan is really the one who is promoting the game worldwide. Uh, there's anime and manga about the game that American kids are. Often the ones who play Weiqi were introduced to the game in this way. Uh, I tend to use Weiqi, but you're right. I go back and forth because uh, Americans use Go, but Weiqi is a Chinese term. Uh, personally, I, I hate Go uh, because it gets confused with the verb. And so, if if you're searching, say, Go competition online, they they take you to badminton competitions and things like that. If you say go Korea. It, it, you know, it becomes a, uh, advertisement for tourism in Korea. It's, it's a horrible, horrible word in the internet age because it's too easily, uh, confused for the verb to go. Uh, and so that was one reason I tried to say Weiqi in the book. And, uh, you know, the other is just cause I was studying in China and that, that was the word they were using. Um, now, back to this point that there are national characteristics of play, it becomes vitally important as well. Japan dominated for 400 years, but today they're really firmly in third place. Yeah. Uh, South Korea is probably number one. China would be a close second. And then Japan, a very distant third now. And there are, there are a lot of reasons for this. The Japan's economy means that people have other options, for example, uh, the raw population of China uh, gives them an advantage in finding talented people to some degree, uh, which governments are most invested in the game. And I think because of the histories of Japan and South Korea and Japan and China, uh, there is no greater pleasure than defeating Japan on the Weichie board. Uh, and for China, it becomes a reclaiming of, of China's tradition. Uh, it was always seen as vaguely humiliating that Japan was beating uh, China at its own game, literally beating it at its own game. Uh, for South Korea, it becomes a kind of vengeance for colonial uh atrocities that happened during the war. The, the, the different styles of play are, J- Japanese players are thought to be much more reserved on the board. They're thought to use traditional styles of play. They're thought to prefer aesthetics to the point of being willing to lose a game rather than playing an ugly move, a, a move that is is kind of awkward on the board. But, uh, South Korea is the exact opposite of this. They're thought to be willing to play absolutely any any move that will win to the point of, you know, bordering on cheating uh, is the reputation they have in, in China. I don't think that's true, but, but again, it, this becomes a part of a national discourse. And then China is presentation of self on this is, is merging a balance, the perfect balance between these two extremes. And so in talking about these personalities, it's not just the go-board the, or the weishi-board. The, these personalities are thought to be part of culturally bound characteristics of individuals. So Chinese people talk about Japanese as being too mired in tricks. Tradition as being uh, uh, less capable in the modern global uh, world. They talk about South Koreans as being overly aggressive. Again, not me. As as with the gender stuff, uh, don't don't shoot the messenger here. I'm just telling you what I saw. Um, and there's a tremendous sense uh, in China as well that Korean South Koreans are trying to claim Chinese heritage as their own. And everything from saying Confucius was really Korean to, uh, you know, a range of other things that Chinese feel, uh, that essentially South Korea is a new kid on the block and it, they're, they're not staying in their place. And this becomes a metaphor on the Chi board as well, that there's a certain level of discontent that Korea is doing quite as well as it is uh, by playing so aggressively and really reinventing the game in spectacular ways, transforming 400-year understanding of what the best moves are that Japan had created.
0: This is actually one of the really wonderful things about this book, is that in a series of relatively Concise chapters, you know, like it doesn't take you a lot of space to make a lot of points in well, these chapters. You. And it's it's really, really hard to do that in an academic book. And so that was one of the wonderful things. It's a it's a short ish book, you know, it's not it's not mm-hmm. a huge long book, but it makes just as many, if not more, really important points about a range of different kinds of discourses that Wei Qi allows us to see into and see more of within those pages than a book that would have been three times the size.
1: Well, I, I, I appreciate you, you saying that. I, I tend to be a compulsive editor, and, and when I edit, it gets shorter every time. So I, I appreciate you seeing that as, as a strength to the book. I, I do. I try to lay out the arguments uh, concisely so that uh, uh, fellow scholars could appreciate it. But also, you know, the average undergraduate, I think, is not uh, daunted by the, the size of the presentation.
0: That's right. And it's a really rare skill. And so, um, thank you for okay. the kudos. kudos no, thank for that. you. I mention that so listeners understand that because it's a, it's a real, um, really, really difficult thing to do. So, as we move into really, really difficult things to do, we move mm-hmm. into this series of case studies where you're taking on, in turn, the children, the university students, mm-hmm. and the um, retirees. And often they're retired construction workers, or at least many of them are retired construction mm-hmm. workers that you spend time with at this park. So, let's talk a little bit about each of these groups. Um, you've already said a little bit about why parents would send their children to Wei Chi schools. Um, you've mentioned that you actually had experience spending time and learning in some of these uh, Wei Chi school mm. side children. Um, you actually describe Oh well, and we talked about the kinds of training and the kinds of disciplining um, that children would be um, imbued with and exposed to through the practice of learning Gucci at these schools. But you actually describe um, experience in at least a couple of different kinds of schools when Hmm. you're in Beijing. Um, There's this Wenbo School Mm -hmm. um, and a summer school as well that was in a different area but associated with that school and you also spent time in a different classroom the neo weiping classroom Mm -hmm. talk about um, the different experiences that you had and that the children may have had as well in these two different kinds of space so can you talk a little bit about that ecology of um, wei chi training for young children in Beijing and and
1: Yeah yeah no i i think uh the, the difference in the schools was another completely unanticipated uh field work, uh, revelation if you will uh the first school i went to was wembo school and it was just this mom and pop shop essentially they they rented out a, a a trailer and then and then summers they had a a summer school at a, at a elementary school and it was very much a warm Confucian personality that was running this thing, and and it was he was very um, dignified. Walk, he'd always help other people before he helped himself. But he very much embodied this this view of the Confucian gentleman, as all the teachers there did. It was very much uh, leading by example, again, not just for the game, but as people. Uh, the second school at the Nay Whiting School. Uh, was much more modeled as a franchise. It was a business structure, and and the CEO of it was very unapologetic about. It. He saw this as a way to make money. Now he was proud of the fact that he could make money helping people, as as I think is true. He saw it that way. I think it's true. Uh, but it was it was a much more professionalized uh, version. Uh, the the teachers were often much younger. They were college educated, but there were a lot more female teachers, uh, which was an interesting dynamic of its own. And so you see these two models of child training that are quite different. One that is embracing the Confucian traditions in and, and its day-to-day lifestyles. And one is appropriating these Confucian traditions for a modern global uh, political economy. And, and that becomes another version of masculinity that is being honed into these children at a very, very young age.
0: And it's also in some of these spaces you describe parents would sit in the back.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So they're, they're getting a kind of, a sort of training as well.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think the parents are being uh, disciplined uh, as much as trained. Uh, Anna Anagnos wrote a wonderful article on Japanese bentos, these little lunch boxes, and talked about the ways that uh, they, they were such artistic pieces that the mothers would spend two hours creating these very artistic lunch boxes. And uh, and, and talked about this as a kind of national disciplining of women. Uh, how do you join the workforce if you're expected to uh, spend two hours making these lunchboxes? Uh, and and I think the same was true uh, of the schools where parents were allowed to witness their children. That the, the children were under much more pressure because the parents were there. So you could feel the calm in the room a kind of cold Foucauldian pressure on them you know this this constant eye but the, the parents too were being disciplined that the usually mothers who didn't really have any interest in the game they were going to support their children they were being good tiger moms and and, and, uh, you know the degree to which they were making sacrifices of their own lives to be in the room to take the children to school to do these things I think was uh, both a kind of vivid portrait of the disciplining that the children are going through but also how horribly difficult it is to be a, a parent in the modern age with, with the children not only going to school but needing several hobbies to get into university, needing to excel at tennis or piano or weight whatever they're doing, as part of their university package. And so this training that starts from the age of three until the children get, child gets into university is also training that, by and large, the mothers are enduring as, as well.
0: Speaking of getting into university, um, you did also spend time, um, in addition to spending time with these young children, you did spend time also with a group of people who began often um, their Wei Qi careers or their Wei Qi training as some of these young children, but you met them um, in the context of right, their careers as university students. Um, So let's talk about them a little bit. Now, in both of these contexts, um, both uh, early on in your discussion of the children, but also in your discussion of kind of the children grown up, um, these university students, you talk about the importance of the notion of suture. Mm -hmm. um, Can you talk about that a little bit and maybe as a way to get into um, how it's relevant to now the case of the university students that you spend time with?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, suture is usually defined as, as quality. And so, uh, it's a quality most often that's sought to be instilled into children. Uh, and basically suture incorporates the tremendous work ethic, uh, being disciplined. And so some have criticized it as being, uh, a gateway or training for neoliberalism, that they're training little capitalist workers to stand in line. I think that there was more to it than that, though. There, there was a certain sense of wending, right? Civilizing process, uh, 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 an idea of standing in line, which is also kind of disciplining. But they, this idea of building a civil society through building people who are genteel, um, the, the reintroduction of class into China's socialism is has been one of the most uh, vividly uh, empowering for some and terrifying for others movements within in Chinese society and And Chi becomes a, a real symbol of the scooger movement of, of of learning to behave in ways that are anticipated that is also based on, Global standards. Uh, who's to say standing in line is is the correct thing to do? Personally, I love it. I'm I'm grateful for it, but this is very much a, a an attempt to seem genteel by global standards rather than traditional Chinese standards. Um, WeG also becomes a metaphor for the fierce competition among university students. and, and especially the students I, w- I was speaking to, they had gotten into the, the very, very best university. Uh, as you mentioned, some of them had been professional players, and then, uh, believe it or not, they thought that Weiqi was more competitive than, than getting into the, <laughs> the number one university in China, and it tells you something. Uh, again, only 20 people a year are admitted into Weiqi. Uh, uh, and so for them, uh, they realized that unless they wanted to just teach children how to play Weiqi for the rest of their life, that university seemed like a better option. Other people were in this blocked-out category that I talked about earlier, people who, for whatever reason, just didn't make that top 20 in their year or two that they had the option to do it. And so they turned their considerable intellectual prowess and work ethic into studying to get into university and, and did that. And that's no small feat because a lot of these kids who had trained To be, uh, professional chi players when they were younger had, had dropped out of regular school. So anywhere from two to four to six years, they had not even gone to high school or, or middle school. They had just studied Weichi full time all day, every day. And so to recuperate from that and to get into university was quite an achievement. now, in truth, uh, many of the very best players, the professional players, got points added to their entrance scores, just as a professional athlete in our university system might have a, an advantage uh, into getting in. Weiji is thought of as a sport in China, which is interesting in itself, right? That goes beyond the Cartesian mind-body divide that we're, we're used to thinking about, uh, and so, you know, one person I spoke to had gotten in without taking the interest exam at all. But aside from that, usually they got a few points knocked off the exam um, to help them get in. But the, the bottom line is that WeChi became um, a metaphor for this struggle, this competition to survive, uh, being alive in this bitter sea.
0: And this is actually a chapter... That really struck me, and I think will strike anybody with any experience teaching um, because you paint a really, really empathetic picture of what, of really the difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, that these students had in navigating between their, you know, their roles and um, their training on the one hand, right. the time they had to spend as Weiqi players, and at the same time, their schooling and the challenges of that. And I think any of us who spend any time teaching sure. to these students, um, it's, it's a really, really beautifully and really movingly empathetic picture.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I I think that's right, and and especially as the American economy faces challenges, we we and at my university perhaps more than most, because so many of my students are first generation university students at, at the University of South Carolina. And uh, many of them are working far more than they should uh, just to kind of survive as they're going to university and the the time constraints and the challenges and how do you uh, compete uh, with students who maybe don't face these challenges and the squeezing out of the middle class in American society. These things I think are all true in China to a multiplication of 10 or exponentially. More dramatic in China, as uh, you know, in in 30 years ago, the the number of working class students in Beijing University was roughly 50 percent, if memory serves, and now it's it's closer to 20 percent. And and one might anticipate that as years progressed. Uh, that'll get more even, dramatically skewed, because not only do you have to be a great student, which takes a tremendous amount of tutoring and buying the right books and going to the right schools, but increasingly you need these hobbies, Weiqi or or these other hobbies, to get in, and that also takes additional time and money and perseverance. And so I think in China, like in much of East Asia, certainly in Taiwan. Uh, there's a real loss of childhood that we're witnessing. The children are going to school from 9 to 5, and then after that they they get a half-hour break, and then they go to a night school until 10 o'clock at night. Uh, And there is a real concern, I think, uh, with this loss of childhood. What will it do to people's psyches? What does it mean for us as as human beings? Uh, Both in China and beyond, I, I think.
0: I happened to be reading this book in this chapter in particular when I was preparing a lecture um, for my later Imperial China class on um, the civil examination system. Yes, and I yes. had students reading um, Ju Shi's conversations with right. disciples. So, at the, so I'm on the one hand, you know, reading about these Wei um higher university students and yeah. it was, and on the other hand, saying, "Oh, yeah, well, this this looks kind of familiar." Yeah.
1: No, I <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I mean. It, it's absolutely modeled both both the, the university entrance test but also the weighty exam these are both modeled from the old civil service exams once a year right and and startling gradations of hierarchy mm-hmm. that, that are involved in that um so so i think that's right if there's one message i i would hope people would walk away from it with this book is is it these traditions are alive. They, they haven't died out. They, they, maybe you could call it a revival or maybe you could say they, they've never really left. But the, the, the remarkable versatility and endurance of these long-lasting traditions is, is really impressive or scary, depending on how you want to uh, look at things.
0: Speaking of remarkable versatility and endurance, this brings us really nicely to <laughs> chapter six and this wonderful, Reese. wonderful community um, of mostly retired working yeah. Wei chi players that you spent time with in a park. Um, mm-hmm. So this is this is just a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I love this. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's my favorite. I, <laughs> okay. if I, if I had to pick one.
0: Then. Oh, well, yeah. so let's talk about it. Um, so most of the park players that you talk about here you describe as retired, and many of them had been construction workers. Um, can you talk about some of the park regulars who most struck you or who most perhaps helped shape or transform how you were thinking about this part of the story?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, they, they were characters. And I, I loved, uh, you know, they were just fun to hang out. They were, they were dynamic, loud, exciting personalities. And it, it was so refreshing because the, the university start students, I was just overwhelmed by their charm and grace. I mean, they, they were far smarter and more charming than I will ever be in my life. and But the, the park guys were just characters, and they, they were these Dickensian, larger-than-life people who just made every day a vibrant, exciting time. And, you know, you had people who would... And you see this in Western Chess. You had people who would run a, a, a nonstop dialogue with their opponent. Oh, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to get you now. You're in trouble now. Oh, what a terrible move you just made, you're going to regret that. And it was just this this, this wonderful point. And, uh, you know, I think I uh, the other side of this is they lived through some of the most traumatic periods in Chinese history ever. Uh, you know, they, they come of age during the Cultural Revolution. And Many of them were working-class people, not of personal choice, but because of family background or other circumstances. And I think that even more than the, the other groups that I studied, there was a love for the game that attested to this lost opportunity in their lives, that that who knows if these would have been the doctors and and uh, scholars and, and authors of their generation had it not been for the pro- political turmoil of their age. And watching them, I was always so moved because they, they would sit on the ground and they'd laugh and drink with each other and smoke and share cigarettes, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, if you look carefully at their ankles and their wrists, they were, they were, covered in little nicks and scars of of working class life of of little physical remnants of a very difficult life they they tended to look a bit older than they really were and and this was also testament and let me tell you Beijing winters are no fun and they were out there uh you know snow uh didn't matter they were out there and so you know, I was fortunate because I I was there from the hottest summer months to just after the New Year, and so I went from uh, unbelievable heat and humidity to wearing two jackets and several layers, and still being just freezing cold. and And they they just took it. Their, their, their level of endurance uh, and the support network, and these guys had known each other for 10 20 years. I mean they had seen each other daily for 10 20 years and one of the most moving to me dynamics of this was that this is a generation that was very wary of talking about anything serious. It was very hard to get them talk to talk about politics, their economy, even to complain about their lives. They, you know they They'd grown up in an era where children betrayed parents and neighbor betrayed neighbor, and and Weichi, I think, provided a psychologically safe environment for them, that they could talk about the game, great move, bad move, and big, big, rambunctious groups, show their love of each other without ever saying anything that could possibly be used against them. And so it was a comfortable conversation. I think to some degree men do this in America, too, that this is a place that, say, talking about football for films. American men tend not to be able to say, I love you. They say, great game the other night, wasn't it? And so it becomes an unexpressed but mutually understood expression of love for each other that I was quite moved by.
0: It's so great. And you also talk um, in this chapter, among the many, many descriptions of some really, really fascinating characters and really fascinating people mm-hmm. um, that you spend time with, you also talk about the ways that, um, given the fact that many of them lived through the Cultural Revolution and these very turbulent times, Weiqi playing becomes a kind of marker or a kind of emblem of security and yeah. of modern yeah. China, right, relative to what they had.
1: No, I, I think I think that's I mean, to the degree that there were were themes of their conversation, one was seizing the initiative, this earlier discussion of real men don't let themselves get controlled. The other was a remarkable gratitude that in, in spite of everything that happened to them in their lives, the worst was over. And they they very much celebrated the fact that they had the luxury to sit around and play board games all, all day, because they remember their parents and grandparents didn't have that luxury. They remember people starving in the streets. And say what you will about the problems of the modern state in China, if you look at the last 30 or 40 years to where they've come today... Uh, very few people would say that it's uh, the world is worse than it was. And I'm not sure we could say the same in the U.S. I think at best we could say that our values and our standard of living is relatively the same to, say, the 80s. Um, I, I think uh, the elderly were tremendously appreciative of the fact that uh, they didn't have to work in their old age, that they could sit around playing games and enjoy the, their last years with relatively good and very affordable uh, health care, which was uh, something that they voiced appreciation for very often.
0: And actually one of the really funny um, and, and ironic, given um, the other things we've been talking about, things that comes out of this chapter, is that um, while you're comparing this style of wei chi playing among the retirees in this context. And you're comparing mm-hmm. it with these spaces of play and styles of play that go along with them for the children and for the university students, even though this community is kind of stoic on the outside and sort of, as you've described it, resistant to talking too much about mm-hmm. they're the, some of the most vocal, um, Players, yeah. Right, and yeah. you, you describe them treating Weichi as a kind of team sport. You know, you make that move, and
1: absolutely, them.
0: and then yeah. the kids are like really quiet, right? The, yeah, the kids no. are just playing in silence. I
1: mean, the, the kids play in silence, but man, once those breaks go, they all all heck breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like any other kids. They're running around and hitting each other and throwing things at each other and and the, the boys. I mean, the girls were very quiet, and so the the gender dynamic uh, was very obvious at a very early uh, point with that. And you're right, the the elderly took it as a team sport. And, and for me, of all the things that I found culturally challenging in the study it was the acceptability among that group of allowing kibitzing, that, that the idea that it's perfectly okay to give each other advice. And I, I mentioned that I, I grew up playing chess, and, and that that's the ultimate no-no, that you, you're supposed to let people find their solutions on their own. And over time, I came to really appreciate the kibitzing, even though I, I, I tended to try to avoid taking advice or giving advice. I, I, I When I played, I... I appreciated it as a cultural construct and and what I mean by that is that uh, a again it, it showed this wonderful friendship that they were sharing an experience that they could rejoice in the brilliant moods of their community but b uh, unlike the children and the university students, these were not people who ever were able to afford lessons. So at best, they had these old, used, tattered books they had bought at a used bookstore. And I think the kibitzing became a kind of informal instruction that these players were often quite good. They were much better than me. And uh, I think that they were much better than the vast majority of Chinese players, more importantly. And I think part of the reason they had become so good was precisely this group. Instruction that they were all sitting around commenting. Oh, this would be the next move, and here's what I why I think. Now, as a Western player, I, you know, it, it takes some of the fun out of the game because you, you think, well, how can you surprise someone if everyone's talking about exactly what's going to happen? But that that actually increases the level of play in, in dramatic ways. Now, importantly, this was not considered to be suture. Uh, the, the part of the discussion we, we talked about earlier that this was not thought to be something proper gentlemen did uh, the kids sometimes would do it especially when they played against me uh, because it was a double victory for them. I was both American and adult and, and defeating me was one of their greatest joys in life but uh, <laughs> you know I, I, and who could blame them who could blame them and and uh, but I think um, with the the elderly, that this kind of group participation uh, was acceptable. But for the university students, it was very much thought to be unrefined. And when I mentioned this activity, to many of them say, well, this is why I don't play in parks. This is why I prefer to play online or in person in a quiet uh, value. But even they recognized that the people at the park were showing their affection and they were trying to help me and each other to improve, uh, to become better people through being better players.
0: Well, thank you so much, Mark, um, for so so much time talking with me. I've already taken a ton of your time, so I won't um, ask you to talk about the conclusion in detail, but I'll just mention for listeners that there is a conclusion that wraps up this story and brings us back to really the wealth of different kinds of metaphors, different historical mm-hmm. metaphors that have been associated with the game of Wei Qi and have been used to construct um, and from which emerge these different kinds of masculine identities along the way that you've shown us so beautifully mm-hmm. um, in the rest of the book and really move us forward from, as you put it in the conclusion ideals of when and Wu, to new economies of transnational sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really interesting final piece of the book. Well,
1: thank
0: you. Um, so there's a ton in the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's an, as I mentioned before, it's, it's an extraordinarily rich study. Is there anything specifically um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: Well, yeah, you know, actually, there was one thing you mentioned earlier, and I, I distracted you uh, by my rambling, so I, you know, I, I want to get back and answer that. You, you mentioned that the game was initially derided by Confucius and Mencius, even though it came to become the symbol of the Confucian ideal. And I, I think that's true, and it's fascinating. Confucius uh, was more dismissive than anything else. He, he, the, the, his mention of the game was, look at that drunk guy who just sits around drinking all day. At least, at the very least, he could pick up a Ouija board and do something with his life. So there was this kind of, you know, he didn't condemn it, which I think many modern Ouija players think. But if you, if you go back and look, he didn't condemn it, but he, he was clearly dismissive. It certainly wasn't something he thought of as being one of the five requisites of being a culture gentleman. And then Mencius, a few hundred years later, he he, he was much more He actually listed the game as being uh, one of five unfilial behaviors, one of five ways you could disrespect your your parents. And I think part of that was that uh, Weichi at times gets associated with gambling, and and probably a more accurate description would be pool sharking, because it is a game of skill, but people bet big money on this in backroom parlors. I, I didn't have access to it too much, but I, I heard stories of this in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and and China, even today. Uh, one of the reasons you hold the Weiqi stone the way you do with outstretched fingers, kind of like with chopsticks, is so that it's harder to cheat. And so I think, uh, to some degree, Mencius was listing Chi as unfilial behavior uh, because he recognized that at the time it got associated with gambling, and and this is a little bit as if someone today said, you know, playing cards is just being a bad child, and and I think that maybe you know a thousand years from now they would say, oh, this is bad cards, but today we might say, well, maybe that's a Vegas reference. That gambling is a terrible addiction. And so, you know, and then the other thing is early Confucianists, uh, especially, and, and even Neo-Confucianists, thought of time as money. And, and you should be productive with your time, uh, not only for yourself, but for the family as a whole. And wasting way hours playing uh, Weiqi uh, was not seen as a productive way to strengthen your family. How did it become so important? I, I suspect it came down to a few individuals, emperors, who like playing the game and recognize the artistic merit of the game. It, it really is an art. Uh, watching uh, a beautiful move is, is really an astoundingly moving experience. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but but uh, a beautiful play is just as, as wonderful to look as a a wonderful tennis move for a a, a brilliant basketball score. It, it's really uh, something to behold.
0: So, Mark, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, it's really thank you. to read it and to talk with you about it. What's next for you? Are there any projects um, that are currently inspiring you?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I have a gleam in my eye. I I, uh, I have sabbatical next year, and I'm hoping to do something with YouTube uh and and it's equivalent uh, to do in China and I, I don't want to give away all the surprises but uh, you know at the very beginning of our interview you, you talked about what led me to the Weiji project as part of my career and I, I I've always been interested in this crossover between popular culture and gender and I, I think uh, this t- is, too often overlooked in China studies for whatever reason, uh, China, J- Japan studies has a very vibrant popular culture subsection. If if you go to a library, you know bookshelves could be filled with all the books on popular culture in Japan. And for whatever reason, we haven't embraced this in China studies. There, even today, if you were creating a intro to popular culture course, uh, it's it's kind of a challenge to find enough works to really fill that out. And so I I think YouTube is the next step and looking at the ways that China is engaging in a dialogue of sorts with the outside world with these videos, both becoming informed about the videos, but also engaging in participatory culture is, is a fascinating aspect of Chinese culture that I think hasn't been explored yet.
0: Well, that sounds great. Best of luck with that project. Thank you. Have a wonderful, wonderful sabbatical.
1: Well, thank you. I'm excited. And, and thanks so much for this interview. I, I thought your questions were just wonderful. Uh, more, Again, more articulate than I am about my own book. So I, I'm impressed. Not at,
0: all, not at all. But it really was a pleasure. So thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.